So Willem grew up in the Netherlands in the 1850s and 60s. His father was a Dutch Reformed minister, so he was raised hearing the good news about Jesus Christ's life, death, and resurrection, what we just celebrated in the Lord's Supper. Now, eventually, the hope and peace of the gospel overtook Willem, and he sought to become a minister just like his father. Unfortunately, school wasn't Willem's strong suit. Right, Isaac? (laughs) And he quickly failed out of seminary. Undeterred, Willem traveled to Belgium where he met Eric Biernick and finally fell in love with Jesus. <laughs> now, he would have met him in the Netherlands. <laughs> now, he traveled to Belgium where he became a missionary to a small town of coal miners. And his efforts weren't very fruitful there until there was a mining disaster. And Willem finally had the opportunity to show the love of Jesus to the people as he tirelessly served them, and cared for the miners who had been hurt so badly in the accident. And from that point on, Willem began to see the fruits of his ministry amongst the Belgian people. Now, apart from his love of God, he also had a love of art, and he would draw pictures of the people and and Belgian landscapes in his free moments. And as, as word of Willem's ministry spread, leaders from the surrounding churches came and visited him. And they were shocked at how poorly he dressed and at his generally unkempt appearance. I get that same sort of response whenever I see people outside of Saturday night service. They heavily criticized his speaking ability and his presentation, and ultimately, despite the overwhelming support of the townspeople, they had him dismissed from his post as minister to this town. Now, distraught at the loss of his ministry position and the graceless criticism of the visiting church leaders, Willem's faith wavered as he began to drift from the Lord, and he sought solace in his art. And beginning to paint for the first time at the age of 30, the letters that he wrote to his brother tell us that he continued to seek Jesus even as he struggled with alcoholism, mental illness, and the temptations of the world that seemed to constantly press in against him. Willem struggled with a gospel message that was all about appearances, that focused on salvation of the lost, but didn't speak to what God could do beyond salvation in one's own life and in the lives of those around them, how the gospel would practically impact one's life. Now, the past couple weeks, we have been studying the book of Isaiah, where we've seen God outline His good news well in advance of Jesus Christ. 
Isaiah 52 set the stage as we looked at the beauty of the good news proclaimed, that God has a plan for the brokenness and sin throughout this world. Amen? Then last week we looked at Isaiah 53, and we looked at the good news foreordained as we saw a clear picture, a clear prophecy of who the promised Redeemer would be. And that's the man, Jesus Christ, again, who we just celebrated, who we just remembered his life, death, and resurrection. And that chapter, Isaiah 53, painted a graphic, prophetic picture that was fulfilled in every way 700 years later. And today, we turn our attention to Isaiah 54. See what we're doing, it's kind of like a thing, one after another. And we get to be encouraged by the amazing power of the good news unrestrained. And we're going to look at the first five verses of this chapter in three parts, the first part being unrestrained celebration. And as you turn to Isaiah 54 and we look at what we are called to as the gospel moves in our lives, I'm going to pray. Lord Jesus, we praise you and thank you for what you have done for us because of who you are. Lord, we praise you that you are a God who keeps his promises in every way, that we can trust in you wholeheartedly, Lord, and that you don't just save us, although we thank you for the salvation we have by your grace through faith in your Son, but we praise you as well that you continue to move in our lives as we are rooted more deeply in the truth of your good news. Lord, we pray that you would move in these verses in our hearts, that you, Lord, would have all of us I pray, Lord, that I would not get in your way at all, Lord, that the words from my lips would be yours alone. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Now, before we read Isaiah 54, I want to just give some context, just we've been reading this book, we know what 52 and 53 said, and so we know that Isaiah is writing prophetically about what God is going to do for His people. And he's warned them that they would be punished for their idolatry. That that has come earlier in Isaiah. But in the last couple of chapters here, God has been giving them hope that even though they are going to be punished, even though they will be exiled, God will redeem them. He will bring them back. And more than that, he has a Savior that will finally deliver them from the bondages of sin once and for all. Now, with much prophecy in Scripture, we need to understand that there are layers to prophecy, especially here. And whereas the prophecy of Isaiah was fulfilled as soon as the Jews came back from their Babylonian exile... The prophecy 
was fulfilled even more fully in Jesus Christ over 700 years later. There are layers to prophecy. We, do you understand what I'm saying here? So it might be fulfilled, something is fulfilled in one sense, but there's a fuller sense in which it is fulfilled again or has yet to be filled and even points forward to Jesus' return yet again, which you can kind of look and see that through many of the prophecies, and that is the case here in Isaiah. And so Isaiah 54 is prophetically addressing the people of God to tell them how the proclamation of the preceding chapters should change their lives as they allow the good news to move unrestrained through their hearts and minds. The more that, that we are rooted and focused in who our God is and what He has done for us, Isaiah 54 says, we should be transformed, we should be changed as the good news moves unrestrained through us. And that's what these first five verses that we're going to look at are all about. All right? You with me? We got this? Okay. So, these verses are all about how we should be responding to the good news. And let's begin with verse 1a, the first half. 54.1a, as we look at the unrestrained gospel and unrestrained celebration. Sing, O barren one who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, <coughs> you who have not been in labor. Now, right off the bat, if I were you, and there are many commands through these verses, I would underline or circle the words sing, break forth, and cry aloud. Every single one of those is a command. Every single one of those is a single Hebrew word, and they are all in the imperative form. Sing is to be overcome with joy so much that we are just shouting out loud. Break forth pictures a dam that is breaking under the pressure of the water. It cannot hold back anymore. It just breaks forth what it's been holding back. And cry aloud is a cheerful shout, a joyful noise. Now, I don't think I need to elaborate on those too much, right? We kind of, we kind of get what they are, right? As, as, as men and women who've been saved by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, people, people who can look forward to Jesus' return, amen, we should be the most joyful, excited, and pleasant people on this planet. And in fact, here in Isaiah 54... This is what he is commanding his people to do. He is commanding his people to walk with joyful shouts of praise over what he has done. Scripture says in Colossians chapter 3, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. 
Similarly, in Ephesians 5, it says, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your hearts, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do we see the parallels between those two passages there? Did you, ever, did you ever realize that the more that we're filled with the Word of God, it does the exact same thing as being filled with the Spirit of God? And the more that we're filled with the Spirit of God, it does the exact same thing as being filled with the Word of God. And one of the primary things that happens is what? Singing. Singing forth in praise, rooted in a deep and abiding thankfulness over what our God has done. The only appropriate response to what Jesus has done is to be overwhelmed with thanksgiving and praise to the point that we should be overflowing with song for Him. Now, now I, don't, I don't know about you, but I don't have the greatest singing voice. If anyone ever stands in the back and hears me singing, you will know this. And you will quickly move to your seat. And when I was younger, to be honest, I was kind of self-conscious of that. And would barely sing any of the songs here at church. How many of you all can relate to that? Yeah. But I praise God that to the chagrin of those around me, He has killed my self-conscious pride in that area. And taught me to lift my voice in song to him and to have no inhibition even about lifting up my hands in praise to him when he moves me to do so. Regardless of the armpit stains that I have from my sweating. It's a pretty remarkable thing. Like, no self-consciousness. Come on. Praise Jesus. Do I have any yet? Are they there? Okay. I kind of don't want to, like, Okay. Now, if it's difficult for you to sing praises to God, ask Him to help you get out of His way in worship. Sing, singing songs of praise isn't about how good you sound, it's about worshiping our King. Let's, if that's you, if that's you who is not engaging Let's, by the grace of God, recognize our pride there. Let's confess it and ask the Lord to stamp it out so that we can lift our voice in praises to Him. By God's grace, when we sing some more songs at the end, I hope it's the loudest praise we've ever done because the Lord is killing our pride even tonight for those of us who hold back. He commands us to do this. Let me just repeat that again. He commands us to sing to Him regardless if we sound like, pick the worst, most annoying sound in the world, and that. Christian, we should be overflowing in song-filled worship of our Savior as the truth of the gospel roots in our hearts and its unrestrained power is set forth in us as we break out in thankful celebration of our King. Amen? But there shouldn't only be unrestrained celebration. There should also be unrestrained participation. Let's look at the next 
couple of verses in Isaiah 54, starting in the second half of verse 1. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent and let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes. For you will spread abroad to the right and to the left, and your offspring will possess the nations and will people the desolate cities. Now, I'm not going to break down each of these stanzas, but the main thing that I want us to see by the grace of God is that the Lord is commanding us, again, this is full of commands, all imperatives in here, He is commanding us that the more we walk in the good news of Jesus Christ, the more that he is going to give us opportunity to participate in the work of spreading the gospel to the nations. Amen? Enlarge the place of your tents. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords. Strengthen your stakes. Every one of those is a command. Now, in Genesis chapter 12... God made a covenant with Abraham, at that point it was Abram, where he promised that all the earth would receive blessing through Abram's lineage. You remember that covenant with with Abram, Abraham? God's plan was always to use his chosen people to be a blessing to the nations, always. And as God blessed them, they should overflow that blessing to others, right? As as their cup was filled with the power and blessing of God, they were called to overflow that to others. But the reality is that the Jewish people as a whole didn't take their call to be a light to the nations to heart. Now, praise God that he still fulfilled his promise to Abraham through Jesus Christ. Because Jesus is a descendant of Abraham and certainly is the greatest blessing to anyone in all the world. Amen? Amen. But the job of spreading the gospel to all the nations, of being the light, has now been moved from the Jewish people and has now been given to God's chosen people that's anyone who puts their faith in Christ, who have been grafted in by faith to God's chosen people. And you can read Romans 11 all about that. Jesus' final words to his followers in Matthew 28 make this abundantly clear, and you know this. This is such a famous command. Again, hey, lots of commands here, right? We're getting expectations of what our Lord wants us to do when we are walking in the unrestrained gospel, right? He says, go, therefore, and make disciples of who? All nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I will be with you always to the end of the age. Amen? We have the great privilege and responsibility to be the hands of mouth, and feet of Jesus Christ as we serve those around us and tell them the powerful truth 
of what Jesus Christ has done for us and for them. If they would just, by faith, submit to him as master of their lives, as savior of their souls. In fact, Isaiah 54 makes clear that we should expect the Lord to do amazing things as we obediently share the gospel with others. Again, these verses tell us to metaphorically enlarge our tents as we prepare to have more spiritual children than we can possibly imagine. That's the metaphor that's going on here. If you're ever wondering, like, why is he telling them to enlarge the tents? Like, what's that about? Well, it's because you're going to have a lot of people in there. Lots of people. With all the babies we're having in this church, we've got to enlarge our tents even more, right? I'm not going to be like Pastor Tim and tell you all go make babies tonight. (laughs) Now, in the 1790s, a man by the name of William Carey, anyone ever heard of this guy before? Yep. He was a shoemaker and also a part-time preacher in England. And he preached what is considered one of the most stirring sermons ever in terms of motivating people to go and share the good news of Jesus Christ. And this sermon was repeated all throughout England, and it is credited with having started a movement that resulted in hundreds of missionaries being sent all around the world. And the motto of this missionary movement was expect great things from God and attempt great things from God. And do you know what his text was for that sermon? Isaiah 54. Exactly what we're studying here. Expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. Now, the Lord may be calling you to go somewhere overseas... But more than likely, he's simply calling you to boldly proclaim the good news to those around you right where he has you planted. Your family, your friends, your co-workers, your neighbors, and maybe even sometimes that random stranger that you come across. The point here, and I will say it yet again because I want us to understand the gravity of this, is that God commands us to enlarge our tents. It's not an option, it's an imperative to do this. And this metaphor of preparing for an increase really is about, to borrow from William Carey, expecting great things from God and boldly attempting great things for God through the power of the Holy Spirit. So, Let's ask ourselves the question, because it begs the question, do we do this? Is this something that we're mindful of in our walks? Have have you ever invited someone to talk about spiritual things? Have you done it recently? Have you ever invited a wandering soul to come hear truth and worship the King of Kings at one of our worship services? Have you ever boldly shared your testimony 
when the opportunity arose of what Jesus Christ has done for you. What does Revelation 12 say? We will overcome the enemy by what? The blood of the Lamb and the power of our testimonies when we love not our lives even unto death. Don't forget that last part because it's that last part that stops us from doing the middle part. When we love our lives and are afraid of death, we're not going to share our testimonies and therefore the blood of Jesus doesn't work in people's lives. Listen, we got Resurrection Sunday right around the corner. Have you invited anyone to come out? I hope you have. Praise God if you have. But if you haven't, well, a tremendous opportunity to do exactly what God calls us to do in enlarging our tents so that people can hear truth and be moved to Jesus. Church, let let me just gently remind us that if we are not sharing our faith with others, we're not carrying out the command of our king. If if we're not sharing our faith, then we have made the gospel all about us and what we get out of it. And that's something that can happen so subtly, so unintentionally even, And this is why God tells us, hey, child of mine, rejoice and celebrate for what I have done for you, and then get your rear end up and get out and tell others about it. Right? I can say that, right? That's not, I'm not offending anyone by saying that, right? Lord, shield my, don't don't let anything, right? Right? The good news is not just for our individual benefit. We we can't submit to Jesus and receive his sacrifice and think that there's nothing else left to do. We have an invitation by Christ, we just read it, to participate in the work of the gospel wherever we're planted. And as the good news is unleashed more and more in our hearts and minds, the result of that should be a bold and fearless sharing of the truth with those around us. So ask the Lord to help you step out of your comfort zone and to walk in the power of the Spirit of God to share your faith story, loving not your life, loving not your reputation, loving not your job, loving not what others think about you, even unto death. Amen? Do you mean that? The good news unrestrained in our lives should produce outward kingdom fruit as we participate in the work we're invited to. But as we're about to read in the last few verses of this section, we also see that the good news unrestrained in our lives will produce inward kingdom fruit as we see unrestrained transformation in our hearts and minds through the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's, let's read verses Four and five. Fear not. There it is. The most common command in all of Scripture. Over 360 times. Someone told me once it was 365, one for every day of the year. Of course, they didn't use the same calendar we do, so, eh, but, you know, God knows everything. Fear not. I'll say it again. For you will not be ashamed. 
Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood you will remember no more. For your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts, Jehovah Sabaoth is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth he is called. Now again, the first thing I want us to see here are the imperative commands that we're given. I already told you the first one. What is it? Fear not. Circle it. What should the gospel do in your hearts and minds as you are rooted in it more fully as its unrestrained power courses through your soul? By the grace of God, we fear not. And secondly, we are not confounded. Be not confounded. In the Hebrew, it it's simply means don't be ashamed. Don't walk in dishonor. Don't walk in any sort of humiliation. See, the metaphors that are being used here of, of barrenness and divorce and widowhood, we need to understand in, in the honor-shame culture of the ancient Near East, these things were the worst things that could happen to a woman. And here, the Lord is saying that even though every single one of us was barren and widowed, metaphorically, bearing no fruit in our lives, even though we've all been disgraced, there is nothing to fear because our God has taken care of all of that through Jesus Christ. We cannot be overcome by the shame of our past. How many of you struggle with that? He says it explicitly here, that we will forget the shame of our youth. How many of you give an amen to that? <laughs> the good news of Jesus Christ, as it sinks into our hearts and minds, it transforms those fears into trust. And removes those old shames as we're given a new identity as members of the family of God. But you know, the enemy of our souls is going to do everything he can to get us to keep our eyes going back to the past. To hear those whispery lies about how you're, you haven't really changed. You're still the same old loser. That is not the gospel. That is not truth. And that is not the good news unrestrained in your heart and mind. That is the adulteration of the enemy. And we cannot let our minds rest in that. 2 Corinthians 10 says, Take captive every thought to the obedience of Christ. What's the obedience of Christ? What is he commanding us to do here? Fear not. Be not ashamed. Don't dwell. By the grace of God, we can let go of that as we are so overfilled with the truth of the gospel. We are new creations in Christ. You know it, 2 Corinthians 5.17. If you don't know it, memorize it. 
Let that be a guiding verse for you. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, what? The new has come. Praise God. The unrestrained good news should bring us to constant celebration as we're filled with thanksgiving for who our God is and for what he's done. It should move us to bold participation in the work he invites us to as we expect God to do great things around us, and it should work in ongoing transformation in us as we learn to walk in the grace of our God so that we can more fully trust in Him and walk confidently in our new identities regardless of what may have happened in the past or what lies the enemy speaks to us now. The Lord will produce all of this fruit in our lives as we press in to the unrestrained power of the gospel. Jeremiah 17 says, Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. Amen? And this brings us back to Willem, the struggling painter trying to make sense of his shattered, barren faith. As Willem continued to struggle through his Christian experience, he began to find an outlet for his faith in his painting. Now, he never achieved any degree of notoriety while he was alive, but would often choose subject matter that subtly spoke of his pursuit of Jesus. See, while he was turned off and rejected by a gospel that focused on outward appearances and just trying to get people to make a profession, he was drawn back to Christ through the power of the gospel to transform us from the inside out. So he often painted images of new life emerging from wheat fields or blossoms that spoke to the power of the gospel to change us from the inside out. He also painted the portraits of struggling men and women overwhelmed by the difficulties of this life and in need of so much more than a mere surface-level makeover. And as his confidence in the good news of Jesus Christ returned, his works took on more vivid colors. Before his tragic death at 37 years old, Willem wrote to his friend of his faith in Jesus. He said, Christ alone has affirmed eternal life as the most important certainty. He, Jesus, lived serenely as an artist greater than all other artists, scorning marble and clay and paint, instead working in the living flesh. In other words, this peerless artist, scarcely conceivable with the blunt instrument of our modern, nervous, and obtuse brains, made neither statues nor painting nor books. Rather, he made living men immortals. That is the artist of our souls. And even though he struggled with very many things, 
Willem desired that through his heart, his art, people would see the transformational light of Christ shining in the darkness of this world to bring life where there is brokenness. And the most famous painting of Vincent Willem van Gogh, The Starry Night, clearly depicts the power of the light of the unrestrained good news shining in the darkness. A light that not only saves someone, but will also move in our inner lives to, pro- to produce the fruit of joy and boldness and, and matures us as the gospel leads us in celebration, participation, and transformation. Let's go from here seeking to have the Holy Spirit use the canvases of our lives to paint beautiful pictures of God's power to produce joy and thankfulness in our lives, to boldly and passionately pursue the opportunities to share His truth with those around us, and to constantly seek to be refined and transformed by Him, that we would fear not, that we would have no shame as we walk in our identities as children of God. By the grace of God, let us walk as beautiful works of art, being crafted and molded from the inside out by the master artist to put on display the glory and majesty of the unrestrained good news for all to see. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray.